0: Hello and welcome to Feminist Fridays, your weekly intersectional dose of self-empowerment and equality. I'm your host, Sarah Liberty, coming to you from Sydney, and this week we have a guest who has never really conformed. Her name is Sally Arnold, and she's an award-winning author, speaker and coach, who has also been a professional flautist, a boutique homewares buyer head of the Australian Ballet's business team and a psychotherapy student. She's currently a career coach who has a business called Creating Encores, the wake-up call for leaders. And she's joining us today from Melbourne. But before we meet Sally, I've got a new track by Rufus DeSole called Make It Happen because I've got a feeling that Sally is going to make it happen very soon. Sally, welcome to Sarah Friday. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we finally get to meet. I know. So, I'd like to start by asking where you grew up and what your earliest career aspiration was.
1: <laughs> oh, that's a big question. Uh, look, look, Sarah, I, I grew up in um, New Zealand in Christchurch, little old Christchurch, mm-hmm. and uh, many, many moons ago. And um, it was in the days when, you know, New Zealand wasn't sort of the flavour of the month that it sort of has been recently. And uh, so, look, I came from, I come from a family. um, My dad was an architect, a really well-known architect. So I came from a pretty creative family and, you know, that, that helped, but New Zealand was still, or Christchurch was still very rural. And look, I was just, I was just really fortunate that, one day on a Christmas holiday, dad took me into a music store and I think it was about nine or 10 and I bought a recorder and realised that I had a a real gift for music. And I I went back to where we were staying and sort of basically became a proficient recorder player in about two days. And so I I sort of knew then that my life was going to turn around from black and white to colour and that... Look, I'd always as a child had these amazing aspirations of, you know, glamour and, you know, excitement and, you know, from reading what I could read. Uh, so I, I sort of saw then that there was a bit of potential and I wasn't going to end up just being sort of, you know, what in the in my days, either a teacher or a nurse or an EA. So I knew that I was going to become um, a professional musician. I knew that right from a very early age.
0: You certainly have more patience with the recorder than I did
1: <laughs> look, you know, and i suppose I suppose it was one of those things that Sarah, I just I had no idea about music really. I mean, I liked music, and Dad had played the saxophone um as as some architects do in their spare time. and just you know it just sort of worked. and I suppose that's what happens when you've got a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you sort of somehow latch onto it and I did, and and look, I'll be honest, because it was a pretty, you know, pretty basic life, even though my family, you know, were creatives and architects in those days in New Zealand. It was a very rural sort of upbringing. And so it just, you know, with getting into music, it sort of gave me a sense that there was more to life. There was a lot more to life, and and I could really – and and i always knew that i would leave new zealand at an early age i just i just knew that i have a pretty um, amazing internal life so i knew that i was going to get out of new zealand at some stage and um and you know get to the world
0: fantastic and what
1: age were you when you left new zealand uh look i was i was 18 i was 18 when i left and i'd um i'd had a, a one year career in a they called it the training orchestra because I I transferred then to play the flute. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, I got chosen to play flute in in the New Zealand training orchestra. So um, I did that for a year, but there were no jobs because there was only one orchestra. Mm. Um, And so I was, it was suggested that I go to Adelaide and study with a really good flautist there. So I came across to Adelaide um, when I was 18 and, and, and studied at Adelaide university. And look, it was like, you know, I came from the depths of the earth to this, to New York almost. <laughs> so mm. um it was it was pretty special. And I had a great flute teacher. That's why I went to Adelaide. He was sort of like one of the, the great flute teachers in Australasia. So I I did two years there and did quite well winning flute scholarships and things like that. And I did um after two years, I decided that um, the show of Jesus Christ Superstar was about to be born. And um, I, I said to my flute teacher, here am I, a classically trained flautist, flautist, um, I'm going to go to Sydney and I'm going to get a job in the rock band Superstar. Mm-hmm. And I did. I did. Go <laughs> I went to, you. Went to Sydney, got my job, got the job. It was amazing. Brilliant.
0: <laughs> so you have had a very diverse career. You're an award-winning author, speaker and coach Who's also been a professional flautist, a boutique yeah. homewares buyer, head of the Australian Ballet's business team, and a psychotherapy student? Are you someone who's always been inspired
1: by change and diversity? Yeah, so that, that's a really good question because when, when you go into the performing arts world or the, any of the arts worlds, you sort of know that even though you've got this deep passion that sits with, within and and it, it's sort of your reason to be that um, a career is not going to, in the arts world generally, will not last forever.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I feel that you sort of know, well, I knew that, and I guess most of my friends and some of them are still still in the arts world. You just It's just part of the deal almost. And I think it attracts, I know it attracts people that, have a sense of change and are okay about change because you have to be, mm. you just, you don't really have any alternative and it's sort of brought up. It's sort of something that is, how can I put it? You sort of learn it when you're young, that if you want to follow your passion and your love, yes, you can do it for you know a certain amount of time, but you may not be able to do it forever. And in some ways I'm really grateful for that because I know with a lot of my coaching clients change is really scary for a lot of people.
2: Mm.
1: And I feel that without thinking about it, somehow I just went through it when I was really young and it was just, you know, when you sort of there's only one way to do something and you do it because you don't know of any other way. Mm. Well, that's, that's how I was. And if you asked most performers, that's how they live.
0: Mm. That's a really good point. Um, I'm certainly someone who likes change, but I know a lot of people aren't like that. But to me, um, having a diverse life, career and following different aspirations has been been a very exciting journey. So yeah, I'm someone who does embrace change. It sounds like you are too.
1: Look, I I do, Sarah, and I sort of mix with people like that too, because- Mm. To be honest, I find if people are going to sit in a job forever, they just bore me. They absolutely, uh-huh. they absolutely bore me. But I realised after I gave up my career as a florist, and then you know, sort of after time at the Aussie Ballet, I realised that somehow that that thing of being in the arts and knowing that you had that change was always around the door has been a great incentive for me as a coach as well. That. I can I can understand how pe- that people can feel terrified about it, mm. but I just know automatically how they can change mm. because it's just such a a natural thing with me. So I can I can just say to them, well, look, you just need to do this, this, and this, and if you follow what I say, you you'll be able to change your career. But. You know, if someone has come straight out of university and they've been told that they're going to be a lawyer and they're going to be a lawyer forever or illegal, um, it, it can be quite scary when they suddenly realize their ladder's against the wrong wall, mm. you know, 20 years later. And so it's, I guess, I I, it, I came to that conclusion after I had to give up my career as the flautist and then was with the Aussie Ballet that, in probably in some ways, I just had was given another gift that I could help people that. Move through change. Mm. I've been through it so many times.
0: Mm. So you now are running a coaching business called Creating Encore's. What kind of yeah. coaching do you offer, and what type of
1: clientele do you have? Oh gosh, it's Sarah. It's 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 a real mixture. And so uh, so to go back to the coach, the coaching started, um, and and this was thanks to being at the Aussie Ballet and. I headed up the sponsorship area at the, at the Australian Ballet. So I was responsible for getting a couple of million dollars in funding every year. Mm-hmm. And so I'd meet, you know, pretty high, very high-ranking CEOs of, you know, whether it was Telstra or the banks, etc. Uh, And a lot of them would say to me while I was, you know, at the ballet, Oh gosh, you know, I come in, I feel as stressed as can be um, when I come to a performance, but I walk out the door feeling so relaxed and Uh I feel, you know, I've solved all these problems. And I remember saying to them, gosh, look, when I leave the ballet, I'm going to bottle this. I'm going to bottle the immersion Uh of being in an arts environment. But look, I had no idea how to do it. So um, I, I lived in Byron Bay for about six years and I met an amazing woman who sort of helped me put the immersion bit together. And my work is my work is basically about creativity and it's about using the power of music um, to help change mindset. And uh, I guess we sort of, a lot of us know now that our brain is capable of doing far more than we ever imagined. Mm. And when you introduce specific music um, to the brain, it opens up and people can have an, an aha moment where they go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize instead of being a legal or an accountant or you know, working for a bank, I can do this in my life. So I use I use music as the entry point for people to change. And um and I just did this today actually with someone and it was it's fast and it's it's effective. And people suddenly go, Oh my gosh, I can see a vision ahead of me
2: mm-hmm. where
1: I can leverage my skills and i suggest this as well into new ways of working so so what i do really at the end of the day is use music to get people to start thinking creatively Mm -hmm. to get out of their stuck place and then to be able to move ahead into careers that um inspire them and you know have lots of passion and purpose
0: there's something very special about music can i ask what kind of music you use
1: uh Look, I do um I use that's a really good question. I use classical music and I use uh-huh. really specific classical music, Sarah, because you've got to be, and I'm just really grateful for my background in music, you've got to use music um that has a certain pace that's mm. in a in a certain key, et cetera, et cetera, to keep people um, open to change and new directions. Mm-hmm and you know if you, pay, if you play something that's loud and banging and all over the place or i mean look i went to Moulin Rouge last night and it was fantastic it was an oh. amazing show um and a lot of that music is really inspiring but it's probably not quite the right music mm. to to play to get someone to change so you've got to really stick with classical music and keep them and keep them in a very it's only for 6 minutes and keep them in a really contained space where their brain opens up and there's a lot of research um, that's being done on music and the brain. So it's, it's a bit of a fait accompli.
0: Mm. So how has the diversity of your career enhanced the work that you
1: do today as a coach? The diversity of my career. Look, um, okay. There's a couple of things, Sarah. It's a good, um, Initially, it was really hard to be honest because I knew that I didn't want to be a normal sort of what I call um, cognitive type coach that just said, "Look, this is what you do, this is how you do it, and it's boring, but you'll get there." So, being creative, it's sort of it, it's been more challenging because a lot of people, especially in the business world, even though I had CEOs of major companies saying, "You know, music makes a difference." But At first, they sort of thought, oh, look, this is a bit of hippy trippy stuff. Mm. And, you know, they weren't that um, they didn't. Well, they just didn't want to be part of what I did. So that's why I had to write a book. (laughs) I had to sort of write a book and go down the traditional pathway so that people would understand. And Australia is also very, very um, far behind the rest of the world. There's so much research universities from harvard you know right through um to universities in the uk etc um on the power of music on the brain in the brain Mm. but it's just taken forever in australia it's only just starting to be accepted here and i I think that's that's a great pity we we might live in a pretty extraordinary part of the world but in some areas we're really behind Mm. we're behind in our thinking so I don't know if I answered your question. I think I forgot <laughs> it while I was talking. That's okay.
0: <laughs> one one thing I'm interested to hear about is what kind of clientele do you have with your coaching? Oh, yes,
1: of course. Okay, so um, so my clientele is a little bit diverse. Actually, it's it is a lot of business people, uh, and it's it's business people. Uh, I'd say it's generally sort of uh, a lot of women who are around the age of late thirties to forty. Um, who are in a senior position, and they've they've sort of got stuck in their um, corporate career, and they know there's, there's something more in their life that is important to them. Mm. And I do have a, look. I do have a few performers, but not many. I've got one at the moment who's just finally, th- after all our lockdown, is getting work happening, and she's got a, a gig that was cancelled in New York two years ago that's coming back. So oh, wow. it's fantastic to be able to work with her again. Mm-hmm. But generally, it's it's um, look from CEO to COO to senior management level of women who just know that there's a bit more in their life and. They find out about me through, it's just through word of mouth, it seems to be, or or shall I say, areas like LinkedIn. Mm. And um, I do a lot of speaking as well. So you
0: mentioned previously that you worked with Princess Di in London oh, yes.
1: <laughs> for ballet. What was that oh, like? Oh, look, that's a really interesting story, Sarah. Um, I, I can still remember the day that the ballet, because... Being part of the Australian Ballet, it's a touring company. So you're on the road, as we call it all the time. And in my job, I, you know, I was back and forth between Sydney, et cetera, et cetera. And then I was doing overseas travel to get sponsorship happening for each tour. So I remember I'd sort of come back from London a couple of months before I was asked to go back to London. And the CEO of the ballet just said to me, Look, could you could you get on a plane? It was Wednesday on Friday and go back to London because our our PR person has sort of lost the plot over there. And they are really, and the Royal Gala was going to be sort of, I think three months away. And he was, I think he was a bit concerned about what was going to happen. (laughs) So eventually I did get on the plane five days later. And I have to say, I was, I said, look, I'm not, I'm not a PR person. I'm a sponsorship person. And I drank my way to, absolutely from Melbourne to London um, oh. and because Qantas is the sponsor of the Aussie Ballet so I was in business class, that so was okay. And then I got to London and I thought, my God, I've got, to, I've got to represent Australia here and this has got to work. But I have to tell you that everyone came around and it was amazing, the ambassador, the consul general, they were really supportive because I guess it was putting Australia out there. And Diana and her staff, they were they were pretty amazing. And, you know, when I met her, she said, sort of said to me, you know, she said, I've heard all about you. And she said, um, I know you work in sponsorship. And she said, um, look, how hard do you find it? Because she said, I find it actually really hard to get money for organisations. And I just said to her, I said, oh, my gosh, if you find it hard, I feel quite good. And um, But she was really, she was good. She was just really gentle and genuine. Um, And I sort of had more admiration for her when I met her because initially I wasn't going to meet her because I thought, oh, I've got a sponsor's event. It was the opening night. I'll go and sort of be with them. And then my sister, one of my sisters who lives in London said to me, no, go and meet her. And I was sort of impressed. All I wanted to say, to be honest as well, was "Good on you for leaving Charles." because uh-huh. She just left Charles then, and I thought I'd better not say that uh-huh. in a royal lineup. But um, uh-huh. and then she went off with the dancers. Um, they had a, um, a a big sort of gala dinner um, at St James Palace, and she was put at a table with the dancers. And they said she was just sort of really fantastic. I think she's probably quite relieved that she was with them. <laughs> and, you know, virtually took her shoes off and they said that whenever some hoity-toity person came around, she almost went, you know, had to talk to them. Uh, So, uh, you know, I I certainly have to say, I was glad that I did stand in that line and meet her and and chat with her and that she she had a bit of a problem getting money. And I thought, oh my gosh, (laughs) if she has problems getting funding or sponsorship, um, I'm not doing too badly. Well, I think... um Yes, it is.
0: You know, it can be a hard job to go and ask for money. So it is refreshing to hear that Princess Di was um, found the same challenge that us mortals do as well.
1: And look, I think it was she was just really honest, and um, and and I just liked that. And I, I was, to be honest, I was really surprised at that comment, and I sort of thought, hmm. and, and it was it was good, Sarah, because you know I'd always you know been the sort of person, a bit of a high achiever and thought I've got to get more money. And it, it just made me feel like, Sally, you're doing a really good job. Mm. You're okay. And uh, I have to thank her for that because I went, oh, yeah, okay, I'm fine. Yeah.
0: I think if Princess Di gives you some congr- congratulations <laughs> yes. on your work, you're not doing too badly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If I look at it that way. So, um, so yes. So that was it. <laughs>
0: So you also mentioned that you started creating Encores after ending up in Byron, where you had recently lost your husband. Um, do you feel comfortable sharing what that w- was like?
1: Look, look, I, I, I do, Sarah, because it's taken me a few years to to be able to do this, and I, I, I have in the last year been able to share it. And I think this is a really important um, – it's just a really important part of my life for others that may be going through, hopefully not – Anything is quite as tough. But um, years ago, obviously, I when I was at the Australian Ballet, my husband got involved. He was a property dealer. Um, he did um, commercial property. He's bought and sold commercial property. And he went into a massive project in Brisbane that, in a nutshell, just didn't work. And so it just sort of um, – which meant that in the end we – basically lost everything. Mm. And so we went from, we both worked really hard. So we went from living in a really lovely um, warehouse in South Yarra to, you know, basically down the back of a plane and uh, near the toilets. And so it was, it was a tough one. And Tony went and lived in Sydney because our marriage then started to fall apart. So he went and lived in Sydney and I stayed in Melbourne. And the the hardest thing was just to sort of have to have two separate lives um mm. that was tough then he told me a couple of years later he said so um even though i've had regular checkups for prostate cancer he said it's my i've got prostate cancer and it's terminal mm. and he said he'd been told he had 3 years to live and as he said to me what can i do he said even though I've had regular checkups. I can't do anything about it. So Tony unfortunately died um, three, about three years later, and it's sort of oh, you know look I, in, all of that stuff altogether was pretty full on. It was you know losing all the funds, all the money, having to start again, starting my, start my life again, um, and and go down downhill quite quickly. But then and then I thought. I'm going to go and live in Byron Bay because before that I'd been living in a, a part of the U.S. called Esalen in Big Sur in California. And I just I just needed to be around healing energy. I needed to sort of get myself back on track. And I, I needed to almost get out of the business world. Mm. So I made a decision. I went on a holiday to Byron and, and really liked it. And I came back and I said to some friends, guess what? I'm going to go and live in Byron. And they said, what? Mm. And I said, yes, I've just got to do it. I just, I have to do it. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. So I went and lived there for a year, rented, um, should I say rented for a year. And then I went, nope, I'm going to stay here. So I bought a house um, in the township of Byron and I lived there for another six years. And I have to say, look, it was initially... Really it was very healing. It was it was amazing because the energy environment is extraordinary. Mm. It's it's and I I do a lot of meditation as well, and because that had helped me through this terrible time with Tony. And I I felt like I was grounded, I felt like I was okay, I felt like I was safe. And to be honest, I didn't want to go near the business world. It was the last thing I wanted to do. But I realized after a few years, I just got really bored, (laughs) I have to say. And I have to be honest, and it was. A former sponsor of the Aussie Ballet, got this guy who's a CEO, and he just said to me, "Well, you just get back to Melbourne." He said, "You're not <laughs> going to get anything happening in Byron." So I sort of, after a year, after he said that, it took me another year before I decided to come back. And look, it was a good decision because, to be honest, it was quite lonely there too. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful place, but I was, you know, I was on my own and. I'm good at sort of going out and mixing with people and getting, you know, I had some great friends, but I I missed the arts and that's the thing that was really important to me. Mm. And I drive to Brisbane and Brisbane had some good galleries and stuff like that, but it just wasn't enough. So when I came back to Melbourne, I felt like I'd come home. Lovely. That was my bar instant. (laughs) Nice. It does have a great energy. It does, and and it, look, it has a fantastic I – I still miss it. I've been back here over 10 years. I still miss the farmer's market. It, they have it every Thursday, and, my gosh, the fruit and the vegetables, uh, you know, they've basically just been picked almost that morning. Wow. And uh, the, just the freshness of everything, Um, it just was – you know, and you get a bag of avocados for $2 or something like that. It was just in finger limes. Oh, my gosh. It was just was a pretty special place, but um, look, I still catch myself sometimes looking at real estate there. But as I think we're all aware, real estate in Byron Bay has just gone through the roof. It so, has, um, yes. So it's it's a look at the moment.
0: <laughs> yeah. So my next question is: as this is a feminist segment, how has feminism been a part of your journey? And just to be clear, I'm an intersectional feminist, so I believe feminism is about equality for all, not just women's rights.
1: Look, I agree. I'm so glad you've said that. I, <laughs> I believe it's equality for all, and I, I, I guess I never really thought of myself in the way of being a feminist or or that or, fem, sort of really wanting to to put myself out there as a woman, but I. When I think about this, it's a good question. I think back to my days in, in New Zealand and I just think, Sarah, sometimes we must have something that sits within us because I still remember telling my parents that I wanted to be a professional flautist. And I, I, they, were, they were talking to a friend of theirs who was um, an English teacher and he was sort of like a bit of a mentor to mum and dad, I think. And I heard him say "Oh, something, look, don't worry, Don and Dawn, because Sally will get married and she'll have children. She'll be fine, you know, so, you know, you don't have to worry about the career as a musician. Mm. And I was sort of pretty shocked when he said that. And I yeah. went, oh, my gosh, he's already put me in a category where yeah. I'm going to get married and have X number of children and that's going to be my life and and forget music. So it must have been because, to be honest, in New Zealand in those days I didn't know much about femininity feminism at all. It was sort of, you just did what you had to do.
2: Mm.
1: But I still remember that comment and, and it really annoyed me. And I, I just thought after that, that no one was ever going to stop me from doing what I wanted to do. And also, if you remember, the suffragettes come from New Zealand. I think that's where the suffragette oh, movement yes, of course. started. And I mean, hey, look, it, it wasn't because of that, but also, I believe too that because I had to support myself a lot as a young younger person, especially at university because mum and dad said they couldn 't support me financially, so I had to put myself forward as a woman and I had to I had to put up with some shit you know at times and because it was about survival and because it was also about getting my career happening, I had to stand my ground mm. and I believe that that really helped me as a woman because. I said, I don't know when I got married and I said to Tony, I said, oh, some people think I'm this really full-on woman. And he he just said to me, Sal, he said, you're as soft as can be underneath. He said, you've got this incredible quality. And he said, you know, if they only got to know you, they'd realise you're very different. Mm. But I, I, I don't want to sort of stand up and, and raise my fists and hands about, about feminism but I just believe it's about our own inner strength. It's our own inner sense of self and our inner sense of purpose and passion, et cetera. And, you know, I heard um, Ash Barty's uh, mindset coach talk about her a few weeks ago and how she manages her games. And he said, you know, she's really now, now she's got a strong inner sense of herself. And he said that he feels that that's that sort of changed her as a woman and in, in the way that she's able to um, come out on top on, in these um, matches and how she's able to win. Uh, there's a better word than winning, <laughs> um, be the champion or whatever. So I, I think that for me, and also I have to say psychotherapy taught me a lot because it was really about embodying the woman inside rather than the external woman. Mm-hmm. And I felt at times too. I have to say, when I was at the ballet, some of the women in the business world oh my gosh, they were terrible, <laughs> they were shocking, <laughs> they were sort of scary. And it's almost like they felt they had to be, you know, these really tough, hard women. No. And it they used to scare me at times. There's just I'd stand up to them, but I'd be shaking when I'd be doing it. Mm. But, um, I don't know what you think with that, but I just, um, I feel that it's important for us to be strong and to speak our truth and to mm-hmm. come from within. And, look, I can tell you just um, a few years ago when I was buying one of these properties that I sold only um, six months ago, the guys in the banks were shocking. No, absolutely. Yes, de- well, dear, if you, if you sort of put your hopes lower, we, you'd be able to get a loan. And I'm thinking... How do you say that to me? Mm. And this was only, I'll be honest, this was only a few months ago and I think it's because um I'm an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, I'm an older woman and I just stood up for myself and I was I have to say I was really shocked because mm. before that I'd had no trouble getting mortgages but this time that was in 2017 I had a shocking time. I had four banks say no to me. Wow. And I, I just thought, you buggers, how did, how did you treat me like this? But it was pointless, you know, screaming and yelling at them. And I found, luckily found a great guy who was just my saviour. And um, interesting thing, he loves musical theatre. So, so that sort of helped as well. So that helps. So, mm. but I, I don't know if that's I, if the feminism thing. I, I look at it and I think, you know, you've got to be really happy with yourself as well mm. and, when I see women who sort of become quite abrasive, I I often wonder how happy are you with yourself Mm. and what are you trying to do that you can't do if you used um, different words?
0: Yeah. So that brings me to my next question. If someone is wanting to change, if they're considering change, what sort of key tips might you have? To them, whether it's wanting to embark on a new career, or whether it's a personal growth type aspiration, what are some key starting points that you would recommend?
1: Okay, so the first one would be um, absolutely, and I know this sounds really basic, but it would be don't give up, just do it. And it's interesting. I heard an an interview and I don't even know who the person was on the ABC, only coming back from the gym today. And it was about a woman who said she regretted taking chances and changing some of her career.
2: Mm. And
1: she said, she looks back now and thinks, why didn't I do it? So to go back to your question, I would say, don't doubt yourself. Mm. And also the most important thing is I found it because I've had it all my life and I now realise I sort of don't even think too much about it. You'll get a lot of people that will go, oh, why would you do that? You know, you've got a secure job, you're getting paid X amount of dollars and you're in a secure job. Don't listen to them because the one thing I was taught in psychotherapy training was when people do that, what you're doing is you're bringing up something in them Mm -hmm. that may want to do exactly the same thing, but they're too scared. Mm. So what I suggest people do is, look around at people who have made massive changes themselves. It, it has to be, you have to go to someone who's made a massive changes within themselves. There's a heap of coaches out there and I hate that. I just don't like the word coach. And a lot of them have not been through any change at all. They've just gone and done a course and come out of it. So you've just got to do some, a heap of research and just keep asking people because uh, there'll be people around you who, have been to coaches. Did that coach work? Did that one not? Why didn't they, how did they, how did they work with you? And I can always remember when I left the Australian Ballet and I went to see a career psychologist and she said to me, look, you're going to have to do some psychotherapy training um, if you want to do coaching. And I said, well, how will I know what to do and who will I find? Which group will I find? And she said, Sally, you'll know it. She said, you have to trust your gut and you have to trust yourself. And Meredith was right. Her name's Meredith Fuller, um, and she and so I went to a lot of different groups that ran psychotherapy training, and some of them, honestly, they were holier than thou. And I thought, oh my gosh, no way could I be involved in with this group. So I would say to people, okay, first of all, decide yourself. Only, only tell people that are really close to you and will support you. Mm-hmm. And then, you ha- look, you do have to do the research because there's so many pretty ordinary people out there that will take you on a journey where they haven't even been themselves. And so you must do that. But also, the other thing is go and look for someone that will take you out of your comfort zone because you've got to go out of your comfort zone to make a change. But also, some, as I said, someone who's been there. And someone who can absolutely support you. And, and I use the word, it's a bit like you're on a um like walking my dog. You're you're on a lead and mm-hmm. that you have the coach walking beside you. And if you're going to make that change, you know that person's going to be there with you mm-hmm. through through that change. And don't be afraid to ask hard questions when you go if you want to um make a change. Ask hard questions of coaches or psychologists or whoever. And if your gut feels like, well, no way, I wouldn't want to do this. Don't do it. Honestly, absolutely trust your gut. Mm. And this this to me is the most important thing. And if I can just go back to the challenge Tony, my husband, had when he went into this real estate project and I had to sign the contract as well, my gut just said to him, and I kept saying to him, I don't like this deal. There's something wrong with it. There's something. It just isn't going to work. Mm. And he said to me, just trust me, trust me. And we found out that the partners were into drugs and prostitution. I mean, that's just another thing. But um, but somehow my gut was telling me that there was something wrong with this deal, and that was the one that brought us up, or him unstuck. So if people are wanting to go through change, and even if you spend six months, just spend six months um, looking at people going, and there's now, now the world is available to all of us you you could go and have coaching with someone in New York or London or whatever. Mm. They don't have to be here in Australia. So if someone connects with you, you know, just ask ask that person questions as well. They'll ask you questions, but you've got a right to ask them questions. Mm. And, um, and, you know, just be aware of how they treat you as well. So that's, and look, this is just stuff that I've learned as I get older, uh, but I must admit I've always trusted my gut.
0: I think that's a very good, uh, very good point you make. Trusting your gut and your instincts is something to me that's been really important for me. But also doing your research and not being afraid to ask those tough questions, um, because that's what gets you forward.
1: And yeah, and Sarah, if, if you're going to make those changes in your life, you want that person to be there for you. Mm. You don't. I mean, they're big changes for a lot of people, and you know, for some they're coming out of you know. A, um, a weekly salary, and you suddenly go away from that, and you've got to exist, you know, mm-hmm. without that that salary as well. So you, you need someone. You need someone. I always say, look, the best coaches or trainers or psychologists I had were people who'd been through absolute shit in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd been through really tough times, and they'd got themselves out, and they'd come back up to the surface again, and. It's called, you know, you, you may have heard of it, The Hero's Journey, where, you know, you start out at the top and then you get all these, you know, sort of shocking things that happen to you and you end up down in the the depths of despair. But somehow something comes and, and sort of a guide comes and takes you back to the surface and you can start living your life again. But just just trust, trust your gut and also get the best, as I said, the best people for me have been people who have been in absolutely shocking situations, shocking ones. (laughs) So, you know, people who've done LSD experimentations on themselves and become psychotic, you know, and then they've become extraordinary Buddhist um, teachers and amazing people. Amazing.
0: Amazing. Don't try the uh, LSD experiment if you're at home. By the way, yeah. probably no, not the best way to go about change.
1: No, no, and and that's what this this teacher. She um, her name's Joan Halifax, and she has um a center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And she, she, in this, I think it was in the eighties, they did the experimentation and um, with her husband. And she said to me, you know, when I was living there, she said that's when I realized that I just overdid it, and <laughs> and she said Buddhism was the thing that got her back on track. being a buddhist teacher and she's amazing she is the most she works with people in prisons and with death and dying she's unbelievable so you can make a change and come back
0: you can all right well just one more question for you um where can my listeners find you follow you and connect with you if they want to support the work that you're doing and feel free to plug your website social media profiles and anything else you'd like to hear
1: Okay, so um, if people, uh, okay, so the first thing is, uh, let me think, which is the easiest one? If they go to my website, it's um, creatingoncause.co, just C-O. And um, I'm on LinkedIn uh, as Sally, Sally A. Arnold. And I'm not sure if I should give my phone number. Is that a smart idea or not? It's up to you. Oh, okay. Well, I'm happy then. 411 eight five double three five. That's me. Uh, and um, I'm on Instagram as, um, and I, I've got to really, inc- I've got to improve. I'm trying to think of the word, improve my Instagram pro- profile. So it's Sally A Arnold. You've got, oh, my email is just um, sally at co, mm-hmm.
2: And
1: all I'd like to say to people who are listening to this podcast is that um, I really would love to hear from you and and no question is is out of bounds. And I think the most important thing when I think back to when I started, if if the woman who was a flautist in the New Zealand Symphony um, many, many years ago had not said to me, Sally, you need to go to Adelaide and this this great flute teacher called David Cubman, I don't know where my life would have gone. And I just have to, and I, w- I didn't know that this man existed. And I think about it and it was scary. It was terrible. It was challenging. I, I didn't eat for three days when I got to Adelaide. Oh, wow. So, I was, and I love food. Um, so I just say to say to those people that are listening, just I'm here and, you know, get in touch with me. I need to add to that. I will be, I'm working in London for six months um, from end of end of April, but you can still get me obviously on my emails and things like that. But my phone number will probably go revert to a, I'm a UK number, but uh, if you want to get hold of me now, now's the time.
0: (laughs) Now's the time. Do not fear change people. Sally is here. Thank you very much for your time today, Sally. It's been a pleasure.
1: Oh, look, and and thank you, Sarah. Look, it's been, it's been great chatting with you and um, you know, I just, I just want to say as an end point, um, make that change just do it because honestly you don't want to look back on your life when you're old and go why didn't I do it Mm -hmm. so so thank you thank you Sarah
0: you're welcome well we have just served you another sensational episode of Feminist Fridays for this week but before you head off here's another track by Dead Mouse called Hyperlandia it's a dreamy one for you and I hope you float into your weekend